When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the things about being in the aquarium hobby for a lifetime, like I have been, is that you have numerous opportunities to learn things, acquire new skills, sharpen old ones, and occasionally to rethink stuff you thought was not even questionable in the past. For example, um, stocking of aquariums. That's something that I was... um, pretty fixed in my mind with for a long time. When it comes to stocking aquariums, I've historically been pretty conservative and generally erring on the side of understocking and simply leaving a lot more room for additional fishes in most of my systems over the years. I'd often be teased by my friends about how empty my tanks looked. It was kind of funny. Now, I think part of this conservative trend comes from my aquarium upbringing. My dad bred fancy guppies for years and was himself brought up following the techniques and teachings of the legendary masters of the guppy hobby, like Hanel, Sternke, and Alger, who advocated moderate stocking in many of their guppy tanks for a lot of good reasons that made sense at the time. And I grew up reading all about them as a kid in my dad's old aquarium books, and I applied their ideas to my work too. It kind of trickled down. Some of my attitude towards stocking was based upon the technology I grew up with in my earliest days in the hobby. Inside corner filters, outside power filters, under gravel filters, those were thought to have rather limited capacity. For what, I'm not exactly certain, but nonetheless, I followed the rules of the day when it came to common sense stocking. Of course, when I was a teen, we had the dawn of the modern reef aquarium hobby and its evolved practices and technology, which I've since spent decades playing with. The advent of trickle or wet-dry filters evolved protein skimmers and the practices of utilizing live rock and sand and reefs, you know, changed the game. It was sort of a marriage of, you know, biology and technology that was never around before. And it kept evolving and continues to evolve to this day with, you know, sumps and, and calcium reactors, dosing systems, LED lighting, and now the latest thing is automatic filter rollers. Suddenly... In the reef world, not only could you keep delicate organisms like stony corals alive, you could also keep more of them because the practice of building up an ecosystem, a biological infrastructure, if you will, which included a heavy reliance on beneficial bacterial populations and managing the specific you know, physiological needs of these organisms, came to be. I was still a bit conservative in stocking for quite a few years, typically massively overbuilding nutrient export mechanisms and practices into my systems. And they... They served me well, I suppose, even though, looking back, I was traversing very deeply into overkill territory. My corals often looked sort of pallid in color and a little bit anemic in those early days because I was so fanatical about cleanliness and chemical sterility of my water. It wasn't until quite recently that I began to question why I was so conservative and for what reasons. Cleanliness, for want of a better word... Uh, was for many years seen as the way to get great results, especially with coral. The reality of this oversimplified mindset on you know near sterility eventually made me realize I was wrong. 
When I was a partner in a coral propagation facility, early on, it became increasingly obvious that the desire to literally polish the shit out of the water had the opposite effect on the corals. We were simply making the water too clean. Only when we allowed some nutrients, some phosphate and nitrate and so forth, to accumulate and relied more on natural processes than just over technology overdrive, only then did our corals start to really thrive, color up, and you know, grow faster. And this definitely had an impact on my freshwater practices. In 2015, when I started Tannin Aquatics, I pushed heavily on the idea of using botanical materials to help create a functional biome and ecosystem to facilitate nutrient processing and supplemental nutritional resources for our fishes and other organisms that reside in our tanks. Kind of, you can tell there's a lineage there to my reef keeping experience. I spent a lot of time though studying and researching the wild aquatic habitats that I was so obsessed with, you know, the Igapo and the Igarape and all those types of interesting environments. Now, married with a more holistic approach, which views the aquarium itself as a filter of sorts, my conservative approach to stocking began to evolve and liberalize considerably. So here we are today with me talking about a totally different mindset on stocking your botanical method aquariums with fishes. I needed to provide you with that you know, brief and perhaps boring to you history of my hobby experience on the topic to provide some context and to reassure you that I'm not just some asshole telling you to stick it to the man and blow off a century of you know, aquarium hobby best practices just you know, because. Now, again, before I get into the real meat of today's topic, let me clarify just a few things. I'm not calling bullshit on the idea of common sense in aquarium management. I am not advocating that everyone fill their 10-gallon starter tank with 50 neon tetras or other equally stupid things. I am still a firm believer in not overstocking your tank. I just think that the limits are farther out than we previously assumed. Yeah, I wonder, what exactly is the definition of overstocking anyways? Is it a sort of subjective things or some hard and fast number? Is it a tank that simply looks ridiculously full of fishes or is it a thing that is determined by water quality, you know, nitrite, ammonia, nitrate, phosphate or whatever, or some other environmental factors which are measurable, you know, pH, conductivity, ORP, dissolved oxygen levels, that kind of stuff. Likely the latter. Now, look, I don't profess to have the authoritative answer to every aspect on this topic. I can only share what works for me, where I've come from, how I've reached this point, and what it's done for the fishers which I keep. Again, there's likely as much subjectivity here as anything else as there are obvious answers to stocking methodology. I mean, on a superficial level, there's not a lot of difficulty in calling, you know, bullshit on the idea of stocking a full-grown clown knife fish, a large, you know, queen arabesque pleco, and an adult Oscar in a 20-gallon aquarium, right? The, the Literally, the physical space and the physiological ability of the tank to support that much life is, or lack of it, is obvious. The amount of metabolic waste these fishes would produce would literally overwhelm virtually any practical filter or biological processing system which you could attach to such a tiny tank in a matter of hours, if, if that. And not to mention, it's simply cruel to keep these fishes in a tiny space like that. It's sort of like having to spend the rest of your life in a closet with three adult strangers. <laughs> this kind of overstocking should be obvious to all of us. And again, I'm not talking about trying to stuff ADM Buna in a 50-gallon tank or whatever. You know, fishes that have significant space needs because of their territorial behaviors or pecking orders typically don't play well with this concept. Now, I've heard the theory over the years that overcrowding lessens aggressions or, or, or whatever. 
I, I, maybe it does, but I disagree. I mean, as substituting one stress over crowding for another, you know, bullying is not a good thing. What I am talking about specifically here is figuring out how many small, and by small, I mean fishes that are one inch to one and three quarters or so in length, like Karasins, Rasbora, Danios, stuff like that. How many can be kept healthily, humanely, and safely in that same, you know, 10 or 20 gallon tank or whatever? Consider fishes like Karasins. Okay, the small ones, you know, Hyphesobrycon, Hemogrammus, not fucking Paku or Piranha or whatever, or Arapaima or whatever. Like, how much metabolic waste does a fish that weighs, I don't know, a gram or maybe less, actually eliminate into the aquarium on a daily basis? Now, I'm sure there's a study of that somewhere. I'm sure there's numbers for that, uh, probably from aquaculture. I'll bet that if we knew the actual numbers, a lot of minds would change on stocking. I really do. Of course, there's also the most banal of considerations when talking about more densely stocking your aquariums, like aesthetics. I mean... Do 50 to 100 fishes of any type and size look good in any type of aquarium to you? Do you actually want that many? Or can you afford that many? I mean, like 100, I don't know, Tucano Tetras, for example, can set you back a serious amount of cash. But yeah, let's stay on the general topic of kerosens. Many of these little kerosens occur in large shoals or schools in nature, right? That's how they live. They've evolved to live that way. They feed together, they shelter together, they spawn together as a community group. They're often gregarious and social and display their most natural and healthy behaviors when kept in these types of groups. They feel safer that way. These little fishes are almost like a single communal organism. It's fun to watch. They'll generally simply fail to thrive or at least be at their best when not kept with a significant number of their own kind in an aquarium setting. There's a legitimate reason why keeping one or two cardinal tetras in so-called community tanks is just not good. You're often told to keep at least, you know, six to ten specimens or more together for them to be at their best. And it's the more part of the, you know, that that intrigues me, of course. It's logical, though. There's a reason for that, as we just discussed. They live in large groups in nature. Fact. I mean, yeah. You're limited by the size of your tank because it's not the Igarape Dracua in Brazil or wherever. It has no large water flow through or a vast, you know, supporting terrestrial ecology behind it. It has different external environmental inputs and a finite amount of water. So your job as an aquarist is to find that sweet spot which provides your fishes the ability to live their lives in a social and physical comfort while maintaining acceptable water quality. And that means keeping them with a significant enough population of their peers to meet their needs while keeping water quality and health at optimum levels. I actually see this challenge as a call to simply add more fishes to our tanks when permissible and to create environmental conditions appropriate for them to thrive. The two need not be mutually exclusive. Now, look, once again, this is not a call to run off like the proverbial headless chicken into the local fish store and buy 300 cardinal tetras for your 50-gallon tank. That's just freaking dumb. It is a call, however, to consider if that 50-gallon tank can be created and managed in such a way as to responsibly provide a healthy, sustainable home for, say, 50 to 75 of those same cardinal tetras. I think that it can be. And this is not one of those things that I'm pushing out to be, you know, in your face to garner those, you know, comments you see like, sure you can, but why would you? It's not like those, I do this and never do water exchanges kind of asshole-like ideas that get, you know, on forums that provoke all these nasty discussions and stuff like that. I'm not advocating some sort of workaround to best nature here. I'm just not. 
I'm advocating looking at what occurs in nature and figuring out if we can replicate some aspects of it in the aquarium for our fish's benefit. It's certainly about, you know, creating conditions to maintain appropriately sized populations in our aquariums. Now, sure, there are studies out there of wild aquatic habitats and the fish population density and the diversity where, you know, uh, researchers did transects measurements of wild habitats and they conducted the stuff. And if you do some algebraic calculations, you can yield some approximate numbers of fishes of a given species per a given area. Again, as I just alluded to, there's more to, you know, this than just the X fishes per square meter or whatever, but it's a starting point, right? And that's kind of, I think, where the, you know, one inch of fish per gallon of water or whatever measure we've historically used sort of came from. It's that same context. I mean, think about this, though. If the fishes have so much room in nature, why do they congregate together in such large numbers in small areas? Well, that's part of what they're evolved to do. You need to take into account your ability to provide an aquarium environment and maintain husbandry practices which can facilitate a more dense population of fishes. I don't take this responsibility lightly, and you shouldn't either. I'm an extremely careful feeder. I believe in good oxygenation, and I'm a champion of significant nutrient export practices. You know, water exchanges, um, the use of biological and chemical filtration media as needed in all of my tanks. The idea of building up a substantial, okay, let's just change the adjective to significant, a significant population of little kerosens was something I'd always wanted to do over the years. For a long time, it was always something that interested me, seeing these big shoals or schools of Tetris. However, I spent way too much time buying into conventional aquarium thinking and limiting myself to the one inch of fish per gallon rule or whatever the prevailing guideline was at the time to even think about challenging that. Again, over time, I started you know, thinking about the rationale we employ for limiting stocking in our aquariums. It's to create environmental conditions conducive to fish health. Got it. I realized that there's more to it than just listing the numbers of fishes. I personally believe that you can actually have way more than the one inch of fish per gallon thing and still provide optimum environmental conditions if you understand what those are for your fishes and make achieving them part of your whole system from day one and your husbandry routine thereafter. So I think it could be done. So as I build up my population in my most recent tank, for example, my, mo- my population of 70 small kerosens in a 50-gallon tank, it occurred to me that it works because I do the things necessary to make it work. You can't have a large population of fishes in a given tank size with proper circulation, filtration, a water exchange regimen, and careful feeding. Give and take. Kind of like everything else in the hobby. You can't have it all, but you can have most of it if you're willing to be flexible and willing to compromise. Uh, interesting sideline, I uh, was listening to my absolute favorite aquarium podcast. My friend Jake Adams of Reef Builders has an amazing podcast called Reef Therapy, where him and uh, his colleague Mark Vanderwall discuss you know, reef aquarium topics, but they're applicable to all. Both Mark and Jake are freshwater guys, too. Um, they have freshwater aquariums, extensive knowledge of freshwater keeping. So it's some of it is crossover stuff. But they had one of my favorite guests on recently, a guy by the name of Steve Wiest, who's probably created one of the greatest reef aquariums I've ever seen. Steve is a firm believer. He has very rigid thoughts on aesthetics and um, the techniques and the approaches that he likes to use. For example, he loves sand, and a lot of people are getting away from sand. When you see my new reef aquarium that'll be showing up in the next few months, 
you're going to see I'm not using sand. It's going to be very different, almost the opposite of what we're doing here in, in, uh, in freshwater. But Steve is one of those guys that likes the sand bed. He understands the limitations, the nutrient accumulation, the potential problems down the line, etc. And he's compensated. He cleans the shit literally out of that sand. He, that's, he does it like weekly, sometimes even more often. He knows that if he keeps it super clean, he can have sand. He's willing to make that compromise. So again, it's sort of about compromise. I firmly believe that a botanical method aquarium with its significant and well-thought-out emphasis on ecology is the perfect starting point for a densely populated tank. As I've shared with you very often here, my thinking has long been that you should actually consider the tank itself, or more properly, the botanical environment within it, as the biological filter, and simply use aeration, surface skimming, and or circulation pumps to facilitate the gas exchange. After almost 25 years of playing with this botanical stuff, I'm convinced that the microbiome provided by a properly set up and managed botanical method aquarium provides a huge amount of biological support for the fish population if it's done right. Now, this is not exactly revolutionary, of course, you know, creating a bio filter, if you will, to support an aquarium, but it's an idea that's often overlooked today. Again, think about this. The botanical materials present in our systems provide enormous surface area upon which the beneficial bacterial biofilms and fungal growths can colonize. In addition to physically fragmenting botanical materials, these life forms collectively referred to as epiphytes utilize the organic compounds present in the water and on the leaves and botanicals as nutritional sources. They also provide supplementary primary food sources for a large array of organisms within the aquarium itself, including the fishes, just like what happens in nature. It's a, called a food web. In the case of our fave aquatic habitats like tropical streams, ponds, and flooded forests, epiphytes are abundant, and many fishes will spend large amounts of time foraging on the bio cover on tree trunks, branches, leaves, and all kinds of botanical materials that are found there. This biocover, as I just mentioned, consists of stuff like algae, biofilms, and fungi, nature's filters. Although most fishes use leaves and tree branches for shelter and not directly as a food item, grazing on this epiphytic growth is, you know, that occurs on them is very, very important. This is what they do all day. And you're unlikely to have fishes in an aquarium decimate all of this growth, so a sort of balance is achieved. Yeah, as I've said a million times here, I'm of the opinion that a botanical method aquarium, complete with its you know, complement of decomposing leaves and seed pods, can serve as a sort of buffet for many fishes, even those whose primary food sources are known to be things like insects and worms and stuff like that. Detritus and the organisms within it can provide an excellent supplemental food source for our fishes. That's a fact. These organisms also provide a sort of onboard nutrient processing service for the aquarium in which they reside, a filter, if you will but one with a feature set and a capacity far, far in excess of most commercial filter systems you can buy. It's free and it's really reliable if you follow the instructions. You just need to give it what it needs in order to make it work. So like your filter's almost supplemental in this role, really. Think about it. In most filters, you're trying to recruit, you know, um, bacteria and other, you know, microorganisms to help process metabolic wastes eliminated by your fishes. Well, as we just alluded to, the biome within the aquarium itself does the bulk of that work, really. The type of filtration, or more important, the quantity of filtration, and the way in which water is returned together play like a huge role in supporting a significant fish population on a long-term sustainable basis. There's no real magic here. Nothing new, except 
to, you know, have a different understanding of the role that the filter, whatever it is, plays in the aquarium. Your aquarium should have some water movement to facilitate gas exchange, provide a little exercise for your fishes. I know that sounds kind of stupid, but maybe even quaint, but you get that picture, right? And to avoid the formation of, you know, thermal pH or nutrient layers and boundaries in our tanks. Gas exchange, which is the process in which carbon dioxide exits the atmosphere and new oxygen from the atmosphere is dissolved into the water, is really, really important in aquariums. And aeration from filter returns helps facilitate the process. As I think I alluded to just recently in a podcast, fish need about five or six parts per million of oxygen in their water to survive. Now, it's not mandatory to have air stones, filter returns, or surface skimmers to create surface agitation, but it sure helps practically, and it you know, helps particularly if you want to keep a large population of really active fishes. I suppose you could say the purpose of aeration is to break up the surface of your water, or more correctly, the boundary layer of the air-water interface. You're not going to separate the oxygen molecules from the water and force gas exchange within the filter column by you know, cranking up the air stone. That's not what it does but it will help break up that surface boundary layer to facilitate gas exchange. That's what it does. And I guess that's why I love surface skimmers or filters which skim from the surface boundary layer so much. They just make the gas exchange process easier and more efficient, and that increases the capacity of your aquarium in the process. And of course, simply choosing an aquarium with a large enough surface area is important and beneficial too. Wider, more shallow tanks have always been a better alternative than tall, narrow ones at this. It's just basic, you know, um, basic physics. What about food and the way we feed our fishes? Is something there? Of course. Feeding is very important, as is the type of food, the frequency, and the amount that you dispense. Now, as a longtime proponent of primarily feeding frozen foods to my fishes, I realized that frozen is not the panacea that it seems to be. Sure, there's certain benefits and nutritional values being able to feed fish, you know, fresh stuff like brine shrimp and worms and stuff like that in a convenient, you know, easy to administer fashion. However, Frozen foods also have a significant amount of organic material, stuff you may not want in your tank, you know, with the food, um, as part of the, you know, the way they're manufactured, the the juices, if you will, from processing. Um, those are those are commonly in frozen food, and those end up into your aquarium water and create potential problems. The juices, when added to the aquarium water, can lead to accumulation of excessive amounts of nitrate and phosphate and, you know, the enemies of high water quality within the aquarium if you're not especially fastidious. It's easy to literally kill your fishes with kindness. Why, why make it more difficult by feeding the wrong food and the wrong quantities of it? I think that if you're trying to push the population a little, careful, non-wasteful feeding becomes really, really important. It's real front and center. And now this would necessitate a change to other foods, like pellets. Yeah, I admit I used to hate pellet foods. I I don't know why, I just thought that was for losers. It's like, ah, tetramen, throw a can of whatever at the fish. I thought they were sort of nutritionally deficient kibble for fishes, you know? And in fact, they, they were back in the day. Things have changed considerably now, fast forward. And there's some amazing, super high quality, nutritious pellet foods out there, which are easy to feed, contain almost no fillers, and are, you know, or non-nutritious ingredients and which are easily digested, which encourages more uptake of nutrients and less metabolic waste. And of course, they can be fed in such a way as to assure that less goes literally down the drain as opposed to in your fish's mouth. Um, I've recently started using a brand called Legit Fish Food. Great name, but it actually is legit. It's a very interestingly processed food that has more nutrition and less waste. And there's other brands out there, Hikari, all these great brands, um, New Life Spectrum, quality 
foods that we didn't have in years past. So my thinking has changed. Can you still use frozen food in a more densely populated tank? Of course. I do. Just be more careful. Don't feed it every single day, multiple times a day in large amounts or just don't dump it in there with the, you know, the water. Little compromises, changes in the way we do stuff. We know how to work with that. Oh, and one other thing. You, you won't just dump the entire population of your fish into the aquarium from day one, right? I, I mean, you shouldn't, at least not without some preparation. You need to allow the resident beneficial bacterial and microbial population to build up to handle the increase in metabolic wastes produced by the fish population. Slow down in advance of adding the fishes. Okay, building up a population of beneficial bacteria to tackle the metabolic waste products produced by your fishes is decidedly conventional aquarium hobby thinking. And there are some, though shit, some hacks that in theory and practice could make it possible to add a lot of fishes from the get-go. Are you intrigued? Well, you know the hack I'm going to talk about. It's called pre-stocking. It's pretty straightforward, but it requires time and patience. Shocker, I know. Only my hacks would be, you know, not really be hacks or not time-saving ones at least. So here's the deal. You set up your botanical method aquarium with a, you know, large number of leaves and seed pods and all that kind of stuff and substrate or whatever from day one. You inoculate it with live bacterial cultures, you know, purple non-sulfur bacteria or, you know, Nitrobacter, nitrosomonas, throw in a little bit of fish food if you want, stock it with organisms like Daphnia, Cyclops, Paramecium, let the tank run in for several weeks or a month or more if you can handle it. You can, by the way. And this will give you the microbiome and overall ecosystem that you want. It'll give it a chance to literally arise and assemble itself before the fishes are ever added. It really works. Then you could add most, if not all, of the fishes at once. Seriously, is there a risk to this? Well, sure. Working with live animals in a closed aquarium always involves some risk. There's no guarantees. You could still lose fishes and you still need to monitor nitrite and ammonia and to understand the concept of the nitrogen cycle. You need to be aware and do a little homework and you need to probably add, as I do, continuously dose some of this bacteria for the first few weeks of the tank to keep up with the pace just in case. Uh, the pace of all that life, the life that you've had, excuse me. I've done this exact thing literally several dozen times in the past 15 to 20 years or so, including just a few weeks back, by the way. And I've never, ever, ever had either detectable ammonia or nitrite, let alone a cycle after adding the fishes. Other than a few jumpers, which unfortunately my open top tanks end up with, I've seldom, if ever, lost a fish during this process. Yeah, I'm no fucking visionary. I'm not the only hobbyist who's done this. And I don't have, you know, I'm not a guru. And maybe I'm, someone will probably say, oh, you're luckier than good, Felman. Maybe. I don't think so, though, because I've done it so many times that it works. Plenty of botanical method aquarium enthusiasts employ the same practice with similar tremendous success. I mean, it shouldn't be a real surprise because it's not really a shortcut. It's not some miracle. It takes time. That's the compromise you have to make. You're simply establishing the ecology and the nitrogen cycle within the tank before the fishes arrive. Fishless cycling is the process is probably known, and this is a version of it, but with a little botanical method twist and its associated benefits. This is also nice because it slows you down ahead of adding the fishes and gives you time to acclimate and quarantine all of your fishes before releasing them into the display aquarium. It also has the advantage of starting your fishes in an aquarium, which is, by many hobby definitions, very well established before they're ever added. Other than the, you know, adding most of the fishes at once part, it's actually not all that different from gradually stocking a tank over time, except that a more robust ecology was in place and operating long before the fishes arrived. And of course, you could employ the same mindset. You'd gradually build up a fish population anyways, perhaps for other reasons, like getting the more timid fishes settled in first before the active crazy ones or whatever. Apply it in a manner that works for your situation. And of course, 
perform regular water exchanges on your aquarium. This is a, not a thing. This is what you do. Make them a, a ritual, a habit. Regardless of how comprehensive the ecology in your tank is, it's not an open natural habitat. It needs help. It requires proper care. If you're going to apply new territory, don't abandon all the tools that got you there in the first place. You're smarter than that. I know you are. So yeah, that's how I have 70 healthy, happy, and active little fishes in my 50-gallon aquarium. I didn't cheat. I didn't create some dependency on a huge, absurdly complex commercial filter system or some you know, magic elixir or additive. I'm not a slave to massive daily water exchanges. All I did was think about how ecology works in aquatic you know, ecosystems, partner up with nature a little bit, deploy all the things we've talked about before in our botanical method aquarium work for years now, including patience, and provide the optimum conditions to allow a dense population of fishes to thrive from day one in my tanks. I compromised when required and understood many of the nuances involved in keeping large groups of fishes. I studied you know, what occurs in the wild and figure out how to make it work in my aquariums. You can too. It's literally another mental shift, an example of looking at things from, as we say here on the tin, a slightly different perspective. Again, some of you may disagree with this approach vehemently. Some of you may be like, what the fuck, Feldman? Freaking impossible, irresponsible. Some of you might shrug and say, oh yeah, okay, whatever, whatever. So, and a certain percentage of you might have already done, you know, thought like this, and a smaller percentage may have just given the approach a try in the, or may give it a try in the future. I encourage you to do what you think is best for your fishes. Regardless of how you stock your aquariums, study some of the science behind it. Understand the nitrogen cycle and the importance of building up an ecology in your aquarium. Shift to considering the entire aquarium a miniature ecosystem capable of supporting a vast array of life at many, many levels. Study the needs of your fishes and figure out the best way to meet them. Don't take shortcuts for the sake of, you know, gaming the system, i.e. nature. The system will simply kick your ass and kill your fishes in the process. Don't just take my words as gospel here, nor the guy with, you know, 40,000 followers on YouTube, the Instagram influencer, or, you know, for that matter, your cousin Brian. Think it through for yourself. Responsibly experiment. That's really the only way to advance this hobby. Sorry about that, Brian. Stay curious. Stay bold. Stay thoughtful, stay experimental, stay logical, stay grounded, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.